This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. Uh, I've got a story from... One of my personal favorite authors tonight, H.G. Wells, who wrote uh, The Invisible Man and War of the Worlds. Absolutely one of my favorite uh, authors to read out loud. Uh, but before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to profoundly thank our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So... This week's wonderful new patrons. Christy Bennett. Sue Olson. Martha Luckenbach. And Anacita B. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. And for any of you who don't know, um, the names that I just read... They are extremely generous, brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which again is a site where you can directly go and support creators who make the stuff that you like. So if you like Sleepy and it's helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's even part of your nightly routine, then consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. Uh, at $2 a month, you get access to the uh, ad-free version of the show. At $5 a month, you get access to the exclusive poetry feed. Um, but no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, that goes a really long way. And I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show, no matter how much you donate. So, 
If you want to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. So tonight, I have a nice sci-fi story for you from H.G. Wells, who uh, I really, really love reading his work. It just always feels really fresh and um, classic in a way where you're reading it and it feels ahead of its time, even though this was written a long time ago. Uh, And when you read stuff like The Invisible Man and War of the Worlds, uh, it's easy to conceive that his writing absolutely blew people's minds and had people shaking in their boots in the early 1900s and late 1800s. It's just so future thinking and uh, way ahead of its time. And yeah, he's, uh, he's a fantastic storyteller. And you can tell because all of his writing sounds really good when read aloud. So that's enough of me being a fanboy of H.G. Wells. Uh, but I am really happy to read to you tonight uh, one of his novels that I have not read before at all, which is The First Men in the Moon. Well, this is the uh, kind of slow burn beginning of uh, a novel about this kind of uh, invention of an anti-gravity molecule, a meeting of two men, a scientist and kind of a washed up businessman. And the beginning is all about their meeting. It's before the story really takes hold, so it's a really great big first chapter to fall asleep to. And without further ado, The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 Mr. Bedford Meets Mr. Caver at Limpney As I sit down to write here, amidst the shadows of vine leaves under the blue sky of southern Italy, it comes to me with a certain quality of astonishment that my participation in these amazing adventures of Mr. Caver was, after all, the outcome of the purest accident. It might have been anyone. I fell into these things at a time when I thought myself removed from the slightest possibility of disturbing experiences. I had gone to Limpney because I had imagined it was the most uneventful place in the world. Here, at any rate, said I, I shall find peace and a chance to work. And this book is the sequel. So utterly at variance is destiny with all the little plans of men. I may perhaps mention here that very recently I had come an ugly cropper in certain business enterprises. Sitting now surrounded by all the circumstances of wealth, there's a luxury in admitting my extremity. I can admit even that to a certain extent my disasters were conceivably of my own making. It may be there are directions in which I have some capacity, but the conduct of business operations is not among these. And my youth, among other objectionable forms, took that of a pride in my capacity for affairs. I am young still, in years, but the things that have happened to me have rubbed something of the youth from my mind. Whether they have brought any wisdom to light below, it is a more doubtful matter. 
It is scarcely necessary to go into the details of the speculations that landed me at Limpney and Kent. Nowadays, even about business transaction, there is a strong spice of adventure. I took risks. In these things, there is invariably a certain amount of give and take, and it fell to me finally to do the giving. Reluctantly enough, even when I had got out of everything, one cantankerous creditor saw fit to be malignant. Perhaps you have met that flaming sense of outraged virtue, or perhaps you have only felt it. He ran me hard. It seemed to me, at last, that there was nothing for it but to write a play, unless I wanted to drudge for my living as a clerk. I have a certain imagination and luxurious tastes, and I meant to make a vigorous fight for it because that fate overtook me. In addition to my belief in my powers as a businessman, I had always in those days had an idea that I was equal to writing a very good play. It is not, I believe, a very uncommon persuasion. I knew there is nothing a man can do outside legitimate business transactions that has such opulent possibilities, and very probably that biased my opinion. I had indeed got into the habit of regarding this unwritten drama as a convenient little reserve put by for a rainy day. That rainy day had come, and I set to work. I soon discovered that writing a play was a longer business than I had supposed. At first I had reckoned ten days for it, and it was to have a pied-à-terre while it was in hand that I came to Limpney. I reckoned myself lucky in getting that little bungalow. I got it on three years' agreement. I put it in a few sticks of furniture, and while the play was in hand, I did my own cooking. My cooking would have shocked Mrs. Bond, and yet, you know, it had flavor. I had a coffee pot, a saucepan for eggs, and one for potatoes, and a frying pan for sausages and bacon. Such was the simple apparatus of my comfort. One cannot always be magnificent, but simplicity is always a possible alternative. For the rest, I laid in an 18-gallon cask of beer on credit, and a trustful baker came each day. It was not, perhaps, in the style of Sybaris, but I have had worse times. I was a little sorry for the baker, who was a very decent man indeed, but even for him I hoped. Certainly, if anyone wants solitude, the place is Limpney. It is in the clay part of Kent, and my bungalow stood on the edge of an old sea cliff and stared across the flats of Romney Marsh at the sea. In very wet weather, the place is almost inaccessible, and I have heard that at times the postman used to traverse the more succulent portions of his route with boards upon his feet. I never saw him doing so, but I can quite imagine it. Outside the doors of the few cottages and houses that make up the present village, big birch besoms are stuck to wipe off the worst of the clay, which will give some idea of the texture of the district. I doubt if the place would ever be there at all, if it were not for a fading memory of things gone forever. It was the big port of England in Roman times, Portus Lamanus, and now the sea is four miles away. All down the steep hill are boulders and masses of Roman brickwork, and from it, old Watling Street, still paved in places, starts like an arrow to the north. I used to stand on the hill and think of it all. The galleys and legions, the captives and officials, the women and traders, the speculators like myself, all the swarm and tumult that came clanking in and out of the harbor. And now, just a few lumps of rubble on a grassy slope, and a sheep or two, and me. And where the poor had been, 
were the levels of the marsh, sweeping round in a broad curve to distant dungeons, and dotted here and there with tree clumps and the church towers of old medieval towns that are following Lamanus now toward extinction. That outlook on the marsh was, indeed, one of the finest views I had ever seen. I suppose Dungeness was fifteen miles away. It lay like a raft on the sea, and further westward were the hills by Hastings under the setting sun. Sometimes they hung close and clear, sometimes they were faded and low, and often the drift of the weather took them clean out of sight and all the nearer parts of the marsh were laced and lit by ditches and canals. The window at which I worked looked over the skyline of this crest, and it was from this window that I first set eyes on Caver. It was just as I was struggling with my scenario, holding down my mind to the sheer hard work of it, and naturally enough he rested my attention. The sun had set, the sky was a vivid tranquility of green and yellow, and against he came out black, the oddest little figure. He was a short, round-bodied, thin-legged little man, with a jerky quality in his motions. He had seen fit to clothe his extraordinary mind in a cricket cap, an overcoat, and cycling knickerbockers and stockings. Why he did so, I did not know, for he never cycled and he never played cricket. It was a fortuitous concurrence of garments, arising, I know not how. He gesticulated with his hands and arms and jerked his head about and buzzed. He buzzed like something electric. He never heard such a buzzing. And ever and again, he cleared his throat with the most extraordinary noise. There had been rain, and that spasmodic walk of his was enhanced by the extreme slipperiness of the footpath. Exactly as he came against the sun, he stopped, pulled out a watch, hesitated. Then, with a sort of convulsive gesture, he turned and retreated with every manifestation of haste, no longer gesticulating but going with ample strides that showed his relatively large size of feet. They were, I remember, grotesquely exaggerated in size by adhesive clay, to the best possible advantage. This occurred on the first day of my sojourn, when my playwriting energy was at its height, and I regarded the incident simply as an annoying distraction, the waste of five minutes. I returned to my scenario, but when next evening the apparition was repeated with remarkable precision, and again the next evening, and indeed every evening when rain was not falling, concentration upon the scenario became a considerable effort. Confound the man, said I. One would think he was learning to be a marionette. And for several evenings I cursed him pretty heartily. Then my annoyance gave way to amazement and curiosity. Why on earth should a man do this thing? On the fourteenth evening, I could stand it no longer, and so soon as he appeared, I opened the French window, crossed the veranda, and directed myself to the point where he invariably stopped. He had his watch out as I came up to him. He had a chubby, rubicund face with reddish-brown eyes. Previously I had seen him only against the light. One moment, sir, said I as he turned. He stared. One moment, he said. Certainly. Or if you wish to speak to me for longer, and it is not asking too much, your moment is up. Would it trouble you to accompany me? Not in the least, said I, placing myself beside him. My habits are regular, my time for intercourse limited, 
This, I presume, is your time for exercise? It is. I come here to enjoy the sunset. You don't. Sir? You never look at it. Never look at it. No. I've watched you thirteen nights, and not once have you looked at the sunset. Not once. He knitted his brows like someone who encounters a problem. Well, I enjoy the sunlight, the atmosphere, and go along this path through the gate. He jerked his head over his shoulder and round. You don't. You never have been. It's all nonsense. There isn't a way. Tonight, for instance. Oh, tonight. Let me see. Ah, I just glanced at my watch. Saw that I had already been out just three minutes over the precise half hour. Decided there was not time to go around. Turned. You always do. He looked at me. Reflected. Perhaps I do. Now that I come to think of it. But what was it you wanted to speak to me about? Why, this. This. Yes. Why do you do it? Every night, you come making a noise. Making a noise. Like this. I imitated his buzzing noise. He looked at me, and it was evident the buzzing awakened distaste. Do I do that? He asked. Every blessed evening. I had no idea. He stopped dead. He regarded me gravely. Can it be, he said, that I have formed a habit? Well, it looks like it, doesn't it? He pulled down his lower lip between finger and thumb. He regarded a puddle at his feet. My mind is much occupied, he said. And you want to know why? Well, sir, I can assure you that not only do I not know why I do these things, but I did not even know I did them. Come to think, it is just as you say. I never have been beyond that field. And these things annoy you? For some reason I was beginning to relent towards him. Not annoy, I said, but imagine yourself writing a play. I couldn't. Well, anything that needs concentration. Ah, uh, he said, of course, and meditated. His expression became so eloquent of distress that I relented still more. After all, there is a touch of aggression in demanding of a man you don't know why he hums on a public footpath. You see, he said weakly, it's a habit. Oh, I recognize that. I must stop it. But not if it puts you out. After all, I had no business. It's something of a liberty. Not at all, sir, he said. Not at all. I am greatly indebted to you. I should guard myself against these things. In future, I will. Could I trouble you once again? That noise? Something like this, I said. Zazu, Zazu. But really, you know. I am greatly obliged to you. In fact, I know I'm getting absurdly absent-minded. You are quite justified, sir. Perfectly justified. Indeed, I am indebted to you. The thing shall end. And now, sir, I have already brought you further than I should have done. I do hope my impertinence. Not at all, sir. Not at all. We regarded each other for a moment 
I raised my hat and wished him a good evening. He responded convulsively, and so we went our ways. At the stile, I looked back at his receding figure. His bearing had changed remarkably. He seemed limp, shrunken. The contrast with his former gesticulating, zazooing self took me in some absurd way as pathetic. I watched him out of sight, then wishing very heartily I had kept to my own business, I returned to my bungalow and my play. The next evening, I saw nothing of him, nor the next, but he was very much in my mind, and it had occurred to me that as a sentimental comic character, he might serve a useful purpose in the development of my plot. The third day, he called on me. For a time, I was puzzled to think what had brought him. He made indifferent conversation in the most formal way. Then abruptly, he came to business. He wanted to buy me out of my bungalow. You see, he said, I don't blame you in the least, but you've destroyed a habit, and it disorganizes my day. I've walked past here for years, years. No doubt I've hummed. You made all that possible. I suggested he might try some other direction. No, there is no other direction. There is the only one. I've inquired. And now, every afternoon at four, I come to a dead wall. But, my dear sir, if the thing is so important to you, it's vital. You see, I'm an investigator. I'm engaged in a scientific research. I live, he paused and seemed to think, just over there, he said, and pointed suddenly, dangerously near my eye. The house with white chimneys you see just over the trees, and my circumstances are abnormal. Abnormal. I'm on the point of completing one of the most important demonstrations. I can assure you, one of the most important demonstrations that have ever been made. It requires constant thought, constant mental ease and activity, and the afternoon was my brightest time. Effervescing with new ideas, new points of view. But why not come by still? It would be all different. I should be self-conscious. I should think of you at your play, watching me irritated, instead of thinking of my work. No, I must have the bungalow. I meditated. Naturally, I wanted to think the matter over thoroughly before anything decisive was said. I was generally ready enough for business in those days, and selling always attracted me. But in the first place, it was not my bungalow, and even if I sold it to him at a good price, I might get inconvenienced in the delivery of goods if the current owner got wind of the transaction. And in the second, I was, well, undischarged. It was clearly a business that required delicate handling. Moreover, the possibility of his being in pursuit of some valuable invention also interested me. It occurred to me that I would like to know more of this research, not with any dishonest intention, but simply with an idea that to know what it was would be a relief from playwriting. I threw out feelers. He was quite willing to supply information. Indeed, once he was fairly underway, the conversation became a monologue. He talked like a man long pent up, who has it over with himself again and again. He talked for nearly an hour, and I must confess I found it a pretty stiff bit of listening. 
But through it all, there was the undertone of satisfaction one feels when one is neglecting work one has set oneself. During that first interview, I gathered very little of the drift of his work. Half his words were technicalities entirely strange to me, and he illustrated one or two points with what he was pleased to call elementary mathematics, computing on an envelope with a copying ink pencil in a manner that made it hard even to seem to understand. Yes, I said. Yes, go on. Nevertheless, I made out enough to convince me that he was no mere crank playing at discoveries. In spite of his crank-like appearance, there was a force about him that made that impossible. Whatever it was, it was a thing with mechanical possibilities. He told me of a workshed he had and of three assistants, originally jobbing carpenters, whom he had trained. Now, from the workshed to the patent office, it was clearly only one step. He invited me to see those things. I accepted readily and took care by a remark or so to underline that. The proposed transfer of the bungalow remained very conveniently in suspense. At last, he rose to depart with an apology for the length of his call. Talking over his work was, he said, a pleasure enjoyed only too rarely. It was not often he found himself such an intelligent listener as myself. He mingled very little with professional scientific men. So much pettiness, he explained, so much intrigue, and really, when one has an idea, a novel, fertilizing idea, I don't want to be uncharitable, but I'm a man who believes in impulses that made what was perhaps a rash proposition. But you must remember that I had been alone, playwriting in Lipney for fourteen days, and my compunction for his ruined walk still hung about me. Why not, said I, make this your new habit, in the place of the one I spoil, at least until we can settle about the bungalow. What you want is to turn over your work in your mind, that you have always done during your afternoon walk. Unfortunately, that's over. You can't get things back the way they were. But why not come and talk about your work to me? Use me as a sort of wall against which you throw your thoughts and catch them again. It's certain I don't know enough to steal your ideas myself, and I know no scientific men. I stopped. He was considering. Evidently the thing attracted him. But I'm afraid I should bore you, he said. You think I'm too dull? Oh no, but technicalities. Anyhow, you've interested me immensely this afternoon. Of course, it would be a great help to me. Nothing clears up one's ideas so much as explaining them. Hitherto. My dear sir, say no more. But really, can you spare the time? There is no rest like change of occupation, I said with profound conviction. The affair was over. On my veranda steps he turned. I'm already greatly indebted to you, he said. I made an interrogative noise. You have completely cured me of that ridiculous habit of humming, he explained. I think I said I was glad to be of any service to him, and he turned away. Immediately, the train of thought that our conversation had suggested must have resumed its sway. His arms began to wave in their former fashion. The faint echo of Zazu came back to me on the breeze. Well, after all, that was not my affair.
He came the next day, and again the next day after that, and delivered two lectures on physics to our mutual satisfaction. He talked with an air of being extremely lucid about the ether, and tubes of force, and gravitational potential, and things like that. And I sat in my other folding chair and said, Yes, go on. I follow you to keep him going. It was tremendously difficult stuff, but I do not think he ever suspected how much I did not understand him. There were moments when I doubted whether I was well employed, but at any rate, I was resting from that confounded play. Now and then things gleamed on me clearly for a space, only to vanish just when I thought I had hold of them. Sometimes my attention failed altogether, that I would give it up and sit and stare at him, wondering whether, after all, it would not be better to use him as a central figure in a good farce and let all this other stuff slide. And then, perhaps, I would catch on again for a bit. At the earliest opportunity, I went to see his house. It was large and carelessly furnished, There were no servants other than his three assistants, and his dietary and private life were characterized by a philosophical simplicity. He was a water drinker, a vegetarian, and all those logical disciplinary things. But the sight of his equipment settled many doubts. It looked like businesses from cellar to attic, an amazing little place to find in an out-of-the-way village. The ground floor rooms contained benches and apparatus. The bakehouse and scullery boiler had developed into respectable furnaces. Dynamos occupied the cellar, and there was a gasometer in the garden. He showed it to me with all the confiding zest of a man who has been living too much alone. His seclusion was overflowing now in an excess of confidence and I had the good luck to be the recipient. The three assistants were creditable specimens of the class of handymen from which they came. Conscientious, if unintelligent, strong, civil, and willing. One, Spargus, who did the cooking and all the metalwork, had been a sailor. The second, Gibbs, was a joiner. And the third was an ex-jobbing gardener and now general assistant. They were the merest laborers. All the intellect was done by caver. Theirs was the darkest ignorance compared even with my muddled impression. And now, as to the nature of these inquiries, here, unhappily, comes a grave difficulty. I am no scientific expert, and if I were to attempt to set forth in the highly scientific language of Mr. Caver, the aim to which his experiments tended, I am afraid I should confuse not only the reader but myself, and almost certainly I should make some blunder that would bring upon me the mockery of every up-to-date student of mathematical physics in the country. The best thing I can do, therefore, is, I think, to give my impressions in my own inexact language without any attempt to wear a garment of knowledge to which I have no claim. The object of Mr. Caver's search was a substance that should be opaque. He used some other word I have forgotten, but opaque conveys the idea to all forms of radiant energy. Radiant energy he made me understand, was anything like light or heat, or those Rontgen rays that there was so much talk about a year or so ago, or the electric waves of Marconi, or gravitation. All these things, he said, radiate out from centers and act on bodies at a distance. Whence comes the term radiant energy? Now almost all substances are opaque to some form or other of radiant energy. 
Glass, for example, is transparent to light, but much less so to heat, so that it is useful as a fire screen. And a loom is transparent to light, but blocks heat completely. A solution of iodine and carbon bisulfide, on the other hand, completely blocks light, but is quite transparent to heat. It will hide a fire from you, but permit all its warmth to reach you. Metals are not only opaque to light and heat, but also to electrical energy, which passes through both iodine solution and glass almost as though they were not interposed, and so on. Now all known substances are transparent to gravitation. You can use screens of various sorts to cut off light or heat or electrical influence of the sun or the warmth of the earth from anything. You can screen things by sheets of metal from Marconi's rays, but nothing will cut off the gravitational attraction of the sun or the gravitational attraction of the earth. Yet why there should be nothing is hard to say. Caver did not see why such a substance should not exist, and certainly I could not tell him. I never thought of such a possibility before. He showed me my calculations on paper, which Lord Kelvin, no doubt, or Professor Lodge or Professor Carl Pearson, or any of those great scientific people might have understood, but which simply reduced me to a hopeless muddle that not only was such a substance possible, but that it must satisfy certain conditions. It was an amazing piece of reasoning. Much as it amazed and exercised me at the time, it would be impossible to reproduce it here. Yes, I said to it all. Yes, go on. Suffice it for this story that he believed he might be able to manufacture this possible substance, opaque to gravitation, out of a complicated alloy of metals and something new. A new element, I fancy, called, I believe, helium, which was sent to him from London in sealed stone jars. Doubt has been thrown upon this detail, but I am almost certain it was helium he had sent to him in sealed stone jars. It was certainly something very gaseous and thin, if only I had taken notes. But then, how was I to foresee the necessity of taking notes? Anyone with the merest germ of an imagination will understand the extraordinary possibilities of such a substance and will sympathize a little with the emotion I felt as this understanding emerged from the haze of abstruse phrases in which Caver expressed himself. Comic relief in a play indeed. It was some time before I would believe that I had interpreted him aright, and I was very careful not to ask questions that would have enabled him to gauge the profundity of misunderstanding into which he dropped his daily exposition. But no one reading the story of it here will sympathize fully, because from my barren narrative, it will be impossible to gather the strength of my conviction that his astonishing substance was positively going to be made. I do not recall that I gave my play an hour's consecutive work at any time after my visit to his house. My imagination had other things to do. There seemed no limit to the possibilities of the stuff. Whichever way I tried, I came on miracles and revolutions. For example, if one wanted to lift a weight, however enormous, one had only to get a sheet of this substance beneath it, and one might lift it with a straw. My first natural impulse was to apply this principle to guns and ironclads and all the material and methods of war, and from that to shipping, locomotion, building, every conceivable form of human industry. The chance that had brought me into the very birth chamber of this new time it was an epoch, no less. It was one of those chances that come once in a thousand years. The thing unrolled 
It expanded and expanded. Among other things, I saw in it my redemption as a businessman. I saw a parent company and daughter companies, applications to right of us, applications to left, rings and trusts, privileges and concessions spreading and spreading until one vast, stupendous cabaret company ran and ruled the world. And I was in it. I took my line straight away. I knew I was staking everything. But I jumped, there and then. We're on absolutely the biggest thing that has ever been invented, I said, and put the accent on we. If you want to keep me out of this, you'll have to do it with a gun. I'm coming down to be your fourth laborer tomorrow. He seemed surprised at my enthusiasm, but not a bit suspicious or hostile. Rather, he was self-deprecatory. He looked at me doubtfully. But, you really think, he said. And your play, how about that play? It's vanished, I cried. My dear sir, don't you see what you've got? Don't you see what you're going to do? That was merely a rhetorical term, but positively, he didn't. At first, I could not believe it. He had not had the beginning of the inkling of an idea. This astonishing little man had been working on purely theoretical grounds the whole time. When he said it was the most important research the world had ever seen, he simply meant it squared up so many theories, settled so much that was in doubt. He had troubled no more about the application of the stuff he was going to turn out than if he had been a machine that makes guns. This was a possible substance, and he was going to make it. La tout, as the Frenchmen say. Beyond that, he was childish. If he made it, it would go down to posterity as cabaret or cavern, and he would be made an FRS, and his portrait given away as a scientific worthy of nature, and things like that. And that was all he saw. He would have dropped the bombshell into the world as though he had discovered a new species of gnat if it had not happened that I had come along. And there would have lain and fizzled like one or two other little things these scientific people have lit and dropped about us. When I realized this, it was I who did the talking and Caver who said, go on. I jumped up. I paced the room, gesticulating like a boy of twenty. I tried to make him understand his duties and responsibilities in the matter, our duties and responsibilities in the matter. I assured him we might make wealth enough to work any sort of social revolution we fancy. We might own and order the whole world. I told him of companies and patents, and the case for secret processes. All these things seemed to take him much as his mathematics had taken me. A look of perplexity came into his ruddy little face. He stammered something about indifference to wealth, but I brushed all that aside. He had got to be rich, and it was no good his stammering. I gave him to understand the sort of man I was, and that I had very considerable business experience. I did not tell him I was an undischarged bankrupt at the time, because that was temporary. But I think I reconciled my evident poverty with my financial claims. And quite insensibly, in the way such projects grow, the understanding of the Cavanite monopoly grew up between us. He was to make the stuff and I was to make the boom. I stuck like a leech to the we. You and I didn't exist for me. His idea was that the profits I spoke of might go to endow research, but that, of course, was a matter we had to settle later. 
That's all right, I shouted. That's all right. The great point, as I insisted, was to get the thing done. Here is a substance, I cried. No home, no factory, no fortress, no ship can dare to be without. More universally applicable even than a patent medicine. There isn't a solitary aspect of it. Not one of its 10,000 possible uses that will not make us rich, Caver, beyond the dreams of avarice. No, he said. I begin to see. It's extraordinary how one gets new points of view by talking over things. And as it happens, you have just talked to the right man. I suppose no one, he said, is absolutely averse to enormous wealth. Of course, there is one thing. He paused. I stood still. It's just possible, you know, that we may not be able to make it after all. It may be one of those things that are a theoretical possibility, but a practical absurdity. Or when we make it, there may be some little hitch. We'll tackle that hitch when it comes, said I. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.